I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome back into my closet in Columbus, Ohio. I'm Clint Davis. I talk about movies and television here every month on the Stream Police Podcast. Always thrilled to have you join us here. Now, usually, we would also be joined a little bit later in the show by Andy Sedlak, my friend and yours, uh, who comes on and talks about music here on the show. But, alas, he's off this month. He's down in the South Carolina Low Country, probably driving over a bridge right now and whispering to himself as he looks out and sees the water. Lowenstein. Lowenstein. And if you get that reference, you're officially a friend of mine. But like I said, I am Clint Davis. I like to talk about movies and television here. I like to help you build a better queue. It's what we do, whether you're on Netflix, whether you're on HBO Max, on Hulu, on Amazon Prime Video. Whether you're, whatever it is that you're watching, Peacock, I don't care, YouTube TV. Uh, And if you're listening to Spotify all the time, that's where Andy comes in. So, uh, yeah, we've just, we're always trying to help you build a better queue here. And actually, speaking of that, I got a message after last month's episode from one of our dedicated listener, uh, one of our dedicated listeners, our friend Matt. And Matt said that he actually, he likes following along with the podcast playlist on Spotify. Like, it's great that we can add the songs to the Spotify playlist. And so you can just go there and listen to them because every week we had five, every month we had five songs to the playlist. But he said, I wish I had something like that for your movie recommendations because it's hard to keep track of all of them. Because every month, I mean, I, I review different things that are new, but I also, at the end of the show, tell you about the best thing I watched this month. So that's basically a big recommendation. That's pretty much my biggest recommendation. And then at the end of the show, very end of the show, I always give you two things to watch on Netflix, two on Hulu, two on Amazon Prime, and two on HBO Max. So Um, You know, essentially, you're at least getting nine recommendations from me every single episode here on the show of things that you need to track down and watch. And and he's like, you know, I lose them sometimes. And, uh, you know, I I know how it is, man. Life's busy. And uh, there's a lot to keep track of. So but I, I, I am flattered that you would actually want to keep track of these. So he suggested that maybe I build a list on Letterboxd. Uh, or on IMDb, 
And I haven't used Letterboxd yet, but uh, definitely have heard of it and heard about it. And so I'm probably going to end up building it on there. I'm already on IMDb, but I just think the interface is a little clunky when it comes to following a list. So I'll check out what it's like on Letterboxd. And I'll get back to you guys next month, and maybe I'll have a list set up that you can go and follow. If anything, maybe I'll just make it even like, uh, I could easily make it like a Google Sheet or something and share the link with you. And you can go there and check it out. But thank you very much, Matt, for the for listening and for uh, for writing up, man. Always always good to hear from you. You can he actually wrote me on Instagram. You can find me there at Mr. Clint Davis, M R Clint Davis. You can find Andy there at Andy Sedlak. His last name is spelled S E D L A K. And uh, you can email me as well if you like it the old fashioned way. Uh, if you're nasty, I guess. It's theclintdavis at gmail.com, T-H-E clintdavis at gmail.com. And Andy is at sedlackjournal at gmail.com. Like I said, I'm solo today, but let me go ahead and uh, before I I tell you what the greatest TV show theme song of all time this week is, let me go ahead and light my my stogie in my closet here uh, in Columbus. Actually got some shrapnel cigarillos this time, so a little bit, a little bit lighter of a load here in the closet this time. All right, let's go ahead and get to it. The greatest TV show theme song of all time this week. Our, our, you know, every episode I, I like to pick out a great TV show theme song from history, highlight it, play it for you, tell you why it's great, tell you the story behind it. Uh, and this is our 66th entry into the canon here. On our 93rd episode of the Stream Police Podcast. Now, Netflix has kind of reinvented television, for better or worse. You know, it depends on who you ask. In the past decade, they have really, they have changed the, I mean, you talk about disruption. They've completely disrupted what was really like the most rock-solid, oldest, dependable, not the oldest, you know, I mean, it's not as old as radio, but, and certainly obviously not as old as newspaper, but as far as a a broadcast medium goes, TV was the big dog. And it was just kind of seen as perfect. And it was like, TV didn't need to change, basically, was the way a lot of people felt. But Netflix came along and, and put all of the power essentially into what you watch, when you watch, how you watch, uh, to the viewers and not to the people that program the networks. So they've completely changed the way it goes. And now everybody's got to have a monthly, you know, subscription model. They've got to have a free trial that you can do. They've got to have the same kind of layout in their app as Netflix does. Like they have really like they've led the way the entire way in this streaming revolution, the original shows with big, you know, A-list casts and, and, and releasing them all at once instead of on an episode by episode basis. So just everything they've done pretty much has been copied to death at this point. Uh, but we haven't in this segment spotlighted very many Netflix original shows, despite them really having a few that have had some very good theme songs over the years. In fact, the only Netflix show that we've ever chosen for this segment up until now was Orange is the New Black, which we highlighted all the way back in episode number 58 from August of 2018. If you can believe it, it's been three years exactly since I highlighted a Netflix show in this segment. So that dry run stops now as we look at a more recent Netflix original that also has a spot-on opener. And the show this time is BoJack Horseman. In case 
case you hadn't been paying attention over the last few years, Netflix has made a ton of adult comedies. It's really like a genre that they have just gone whole hog into. They've made so many of them that you can lose count. I mean, it seems like a new one comes out, uh, you know, every month really at this point. But there was a time when they hadn't gotten into animation yet. And BoJack Horseman was uh, actually the beginning for them of this of of tackling this genre and really it has ended up being the best of uh them doing animation to this point uh the show debuted in 2014 with a first season that was actually mediocre if you look at the critical uh you know take on the first season of bojack horseman but the show managed to do something that TV shows rarely ever do, and that is get better with every single passing season to where the last few seasons of the show were like 100% scores at Rotten Tomatoes. Um, And the show just became essential viewing basically in the last few years as it really zeroed in on what it was trying to do and how to tell its story as it really found its voice. So many shows don't do that. So many shows, especially on Netflix, come out of the gate with a great first season. And then it's like they didn't think beyond that. They're like, well, shit, we didn't even think it was going to, you know, get picked up, let alone get another season. So uh, I guess we'll just keep telling the story. But BoJack Horseman did the thing that great TV shows do, which was get deeper into its story and into its character and uh, tell better stories as it went on instead of feeling like it was just dragging along and uh, dragging its feet, basically. Uh, So the show actually ended in 2020 with its sixth batch of episodes. If you don't know anything about BoJack Horseman, it follows the life of a washed-up actor who is named BoJack Horseman, and he's voiced by Will Arnett. Uh, And the character is actually an anthropomorphic horse. So he's just a horse that, like, walks like a human up on two legs, wears clothing, you know, wears sunglasses. Like, just, he he dresses and acts and talks, obviously, like a human. Because it's set in this alternate world where animals and people live kind of side by side and animals are basically like people. Um, so it's a, it's a very bizarre kind of thing to watch, but it's cartoon land. So it's, you, you go with it. But uh, the character was is a washed up actor who starred in a hot sitcom in the 1990s, but like hasn't done jack shit since then. And his life is, you know, basically awful now as he battles addiction and self-destructive behavior. He tries to make a comeback into the world of entertainment, you know, all that. It's not a, exactly a new story. But it's, we've never seen it done with a horse before, so I guess it is new uh, in that way. The tone of the series, though, is actually quite dark and serious. Many of the episodes in the later run were really praised because it, the show borders on straight character drama versus kind of the goofy stuff that you're used to from adult cartoons, where it's really just about how vulgar can we make the jokes and that kind of stuff. This show really got serious, and you started you know, you're, to feel yourself, according to what I've read anyway, for this anthropomorphic horse so uh, other actors in the cast uh, include Allison Brie who seems like she's in every single tv show uh, for the last decade right I mean I don't know what she does with her free time but she's just constantly in tv shows Aaron Paul uh, is in it as well and Amy Sedaris uh, who is just fantastic does a voice in the show also but like I said led by Will Arnett at the top This theme 
song, though, which is what we're here to talk about, has this trippy, laid-back vibe that you can hear. It's one of those songs that you could kind of just listen to on a loop, I feel like, and, and you would enjoy it. And you could smoke, and you could sit back and have a drink, and, you know, it just feels right. It's got this laid-back vibe that really matches the tone of the show very well and the character. And the story behind the theme song is actually pretty interesting also. When I looked into it, I wasn't expecting anything very interesting, but the song was written and performed by Patrick Carney. And if that name sounds familiar to you, he's the drummer and, and one half of the uh, rock duo, the Black Keys, uh, Akron's finest. And uh, it, he actually wrote and performed this song alongside his uncle, who's named Ralph Carney, who's also a musician. Uh, and the two of them were messing around in Patrick's home studio after he had just kind of put it together. And they were testing out some different sounds. And this is what they came out with. So the song wasn't really meant to be anything. It was just kind of a doodle between two musicians, basically, as they're testing studio equipment. But Carney ends up putting it away somewhere, and he gets a call from somebody working on BoJack Horseman asking if he could maybe write the theme song to the show. If he had any music he would, you know, thinks would work for that. And so he sends them the track, uh, and they love it. And that's where the opener of BoJack Horseman came from, just Patrick Carney and his uncle messing around in his studio. And they came out with this, which is pretty damn good piece of TV theme music. Bojack Horseman somehow never won an Emmy. I was really surprised by that because of its you know, massive acclaim that it had built up. Uh, it did get three nominations, never pulled one off, though, but it won a slew of other awards, including two from the Writers Guild of America, which is pretty impressive. Uh, the show ended up running for six seasons, 77 total episodes before properly ending in 2020. And uh, that's a rarity for Netflix shows, too, getting a proper ending instead of being canceled now. I remember there was a day when they used to never cancel shows. Now they just cancel them left and right, it seems like. But BoJack got to go on a full run and and wrap up the way it was supposed to. Uh, today we are honoring the theme song from BoJack Horseman performed by Patrick Carney and Ralph Carney. It's our pick for the greatest TV show theme song of all time this week. Pretty cool track, and uh, I did not realize that it was a Patrick Carney original until uh, I got into uh, digging into the research, which is pretty cool. I'm always I've always have fun doing that segment because I always learn something about these songs that I've heard so many times, uh, and this was another case of it where I didn't know anything about this song, but then it turned out that the story was actually pretty damn interesting. So since the last time we spoke, the biggest TV event. Uh, biggest live TV event that happens every four years, obviously, really every two years, but the Summer Olympics are a bigger deal, happened, and that, of course, was the Tokyo Olympics. Very bizarre atmosphere this time. Um, I'm still not used, because I'm a real nerd on the how the broadcast side and how it goes, I'm still not used to Bob Costas not sitting in the chair. You know, Mike Tirico does a fine job. He kind of he kind of grosses me out a little bit because of some of the stories that came out about him at ESPN. I, I'm surprised that he has kind of come out unscathed because he he had like this reputation for being kind of creepy with 
women that worked at ESPN. If you look look it up, you'll find stories from Deadspin and stuff like that uh, that come from good sources. But he does a you know a fine job on the air, and you know he's very smooth and all that. But Costas just to me was the Olympics, and you know he's still like Costas is old, but. I feel like he could have done it for another 40 years. You know what I mean? He's one of those old guys that just like that, that is a job you get better at. The older you get, the more perspective you have. So I kind of just want Costas to be back in there, but I had, I had no problems with net with uh, NBC's uh, broadcast of the games. I was, you know, happy with pretty much all of it. I thought, I think again, that, that this is a, a real benefit to it being on a network like NBC, where they have all these networks under their umbrella, like USA and, uh, and, and NBC Sportsnet and CNBC and even MSNBC where they can show everything on TV. They can show all of these different events on television, but also now they have Peacock where they did a lot of the games as well. Uh, I didn't get to watch any of Peacock's coverage, but I read that there were you know some issues with it, especially in the opening days, but I didn't hear too much about it later on as it, as it got on. But I have to say, I always look forward to the Olympics. And it's actually a theme song that we have honored in the greatest TV show theme songs ever. The the John Williams Olympics fanfare. We did that one forever ago. Uh, Might have been during the Rio games that I said that was the greatest TV show theme song ever because that really is great. Everybody knows and loves that song and just immediately gets images of in their mind of whatever their favorite Olympic moment is. Um, but I had fun once again feeling like Live TV was where it was because I come from that time when live TV still was a big deal and it was it was fun to be sitting and watching things at the same time. But at the same time, the extreme time zone difference is starting to bum me out like we've had so many games and obviously we had Rio uh, not that long ago. So that was that was the same kind of time zone as us. But, you know, we've had a lot of games now in far east asia and you know whether it was south korea or japan now china china's going to be doing the winter olympics again uh this next time uh, so it's just like it, it feels like we're we've got this extreme time zone difference to where you know you're dodging spoilers all day long and um i'm definitely ready to have the events be live on tv in prime time again so i don't have to duck spoilers all day. So I'll be, I'll be excited when it moves back, at least to Europe when it goes to Paris, but uh, it's exhausting when it's that far away from us because it just is so hard to get away from the spoilers of the, of the main events. But I still watched, even with spoilers, I still watched the events that, you know, like gymnastics, I was still watching it, even though I knew what was going to happen and I still found it compelling. So I don't know, the Olympics have come and gone once again after a, after a delay. And now we'll just have next year to wait for the uh, winter games. So they're going to be here again before you know it, and uh, NBC will be able to tune up that Peacock broadcast even uh, even better. Did you watch the Olympics? Did you have any thoughts, especially on the presentation, on the way it was run from the apps? Uh, write me, Drop me a line. I'd, I'd love to hear what your thoughts were. TheClintDavis at gmail.com. Or do you just not even care anymore? Is it not something you watch anymore? Is it not a big deal? I, I still like the Olympics. I'm a, I'm a nerd for it, I have to admit. All right, the Olympics are, are full of 
spills and, and injuries and stuff like that. But let's talk about something far more bloody and dangerous than the Olympics that is now streaming on HBO Max. The Suicide Squad, the highly, uh, you know, the, the long-awaited, highly touted reboot of the Suicide Squad movie franchise done by James Gunn, who was, uh, you know, hired and signed by the DC universe, cinematic universe, after he was fired, of course, by Disney for jokes that he made years ago on Twitter and then Disney hired him back. He, he's the guy that behind the Guardians of the Galaxy movies. He wrote and directed the first two Guardians of the Galaxy movies. And then they fired him when work was getting started on the third one. Uh, and then the actors kind of flipped out because they love working with him. Apparently, he's a great director to work with. Um, and Disney ended up hiring him back. because It was silly that they fired him anyway because it was really old jokes really and old stuff. And it was, I mean, offensive stuff. But, you know, the guy's an artist and I think it's... You know, it, it, I don't think if you listen to people talk about his work and working with him, you'll hear that he is a guy that, you know, is a genuine good guy to work with. And it, it doesn't seem like a this is a character issue. That's really something here. It sounds like he was just trying to be an edgelord back in the day, which uh, many of us have been guilty of at some point or another uh, on social media. But so anyway, Gunn's had this whirlwind thing where he's gone back and forth, but his, his movie that he did for DC is the suicide squad, which is kind of like guardians of the galaxy in that it's a mashup of, uh, of different, like a group of characters coming together to pull off a job. And, uh, I didn't see the suicide squad that came out a couple years ago. That was just called suicide squad. It didn't have the, at the beginning, that was the one that had Jared Leto's, uh, Joker in it and um, you know it had Margot Robbie as Harley Quinn and it had Will Smith in it and a couple other big time actors but this one brings back Margot Robbie um, it's also got uh, Viola Davis she comes back she was in the in the last Suicide Squad so it, it's a sequel and Joel Kinnaman as well is in it and he's just like Jack now man I remember him in The Killing that's the thing I always think of and he was kind of like a scrawny drug addict uh, and that show was cool, uh, back, you know, when it first came out and he was, yeah, he was like a scrawny junkhead basically in that show. And uh, now I look at him and I'm like, dude, this guy's, this guy's jacked. And I forgot he was like a big action star. Now he did the judge dread movie, did the, uh, RoboCop reboot. He's, uh, he's kind of been all over the place, but, uh, yeah, he, he's in this one. And I think he was in suicide squad, the, the other one also, but, um, I, the title is confusing because, again, now we're going to have this thing where in, like, 15, 20 years to come, people are going to be looking at these movies and they're going to be like, which one? Suicide Squad? The Suicide Squad? Who knows what the next one's going to be called? Like, why didn't they just call it something else if it's going to be a sequel? Because it is a sequel, but they're also trying to make it seem like they're trying to have their cake and eat it, too. They're trying to make it seem like it's its own whole new thing and it is it's like a i've heard the term soft reboot you know whatever that means which is just kind of a wimpy way of saying that uh we basically hated what the first movie did we didn't like it at all it sucked um but a couple of the actors were good so we want to bring them back uh and we want to just kind of carry on with those characters but we're not going to necessarily have any references to that other movie we're going to pretend it doesn't exist so that's what a soft reboot basically is it's like a remake almost uh, of the other Suicide Squad from what I understand. But they, they also add some people to the cast. Idris Elba is essentially the main character in this one. 
and John Cena is in it as well. Uh, and both of them do a great job. I mean, what else would you expect from them? I thought Margot Robbie did a good job as well. I'm a I'm a big Harley Quinn fan. I always have been. She's always been in the comics. Like Batman was actually one of the comics like characters that I read, and uh, the Batman Mad Love comic back in the day where where uh, Harley Quinn was introduced is one of my very favorites that I've got. If I was going to frame a comic book, it'd probably be that one. Um, I just like her character. I love the way she was depicted in Batman, the animated series. Um, and I like the classic jester outfit that she would wear and had the big hammer and all that stuff and her Jersey accent, you know, her whole backstory of being the psychiatrist who ended up succumbing to the charms of the Joker and, and, you know, turned bad and all this and turned into a psychopath essentially. Um, you know, she's another brilliant psychopath from the Batman universe, but the movies have played her in a kind of a weird punky way with the short shorts and that kind of shit. And it's, I don't know, it's not really the way I ever pictured her, but I do think Margot Robbie has really gotten into this role. I think she loves playing this role because she's done it already in three movies and has said that she'll do it pretty much as long as she possibly can. But I was watching the Suicide Squad with Beth, and um, we both liked it. We both had fun watching the movie. But I couldn't help sitting there and kind of being like, this is less like transformative than I was kind of thinking it was going to be. But then I, I'm also sitting there like, why am I trained to think that these movies need to be something deeper than what they are? And I blame Christopher Nolan for th that completely and I am not saying this as like a way to to compliment Christopher Nolan I really legitimately do blame him for this because those Dark Knight movies and I think less so with Batman Begins but it started with Batman Begins because the tone of that movie was very serious and the look of it was just you know it was gorgeous. I remember seeing that movie in, in uh, IMAX in a full theater, 100% full. I was like in the second row. I'm like breaking my neck looking up at this huge screen to watch Batman Begins. I came with friends and we all had to sit separately because we were like late and there's, all the seats were taken up. So it was one of those movie experiences I'll never forget. But I also blame him because now we kind of look at all superhero movies through that dark night Batman Begins, Christopher Nolan, Lens, and we're all like, well, this is what they should be. So why aren't they like, why am I not watching this and being blown away by the cinema here? You know, and I think it's unfair because this was not a genre that was really like that. And it's a silly genre, right? I mean, comics, think about like, we think of comic book movies now as like the mainstream because Marvel has done that. The Marvel Cinematic Universe has made them the most popular movies, but this was never the way that comic book movies were. Comic book movies were not the high, like the absolute highest grossing, you know, most popular movies. Many of them came out, didn't do a whole lot. You know, you had Superman and Batman that did really well, but, you know, they weren't the biggest, biggest movies. And most people didn't see them. You know, the people that really saw them and were serious about them were people that read comic books, which is actually a very small audience. It's a niche group of people and Christopher Nolan comes along makes these Batman movies that are absolutely huge at the box office everyone wants to see them because the word of mouth is just massive but they also appealed to serious comic book people because of the you know kind of 
more obscure characters that they got into a little bit more in the backstories they delivered. But then Marvel really made everyone feel like they were in on the world of comics. And I'm not like calling myself a big comic person because I'm not. I'm like a, a dilettante, really. I, I've read, you know, all the big graphic novels, basically. And I've got, you know, some comics on my shelf, but I'm much more of a, of a, like, lightweight when it comes to getting into saying that I'm like a comic book fan. I'm not a deep comic book fan. I've read like the essential classics basically uh, and not a whole lot beyond that. But Marvel made everybody feel like that like everyone was in on the world of comics because they had all these Easter eggs tying the movies together and all these callbacks to different like characters from the comics that people wouldn't have known unless they were real nerds. And now though you can just go on Wikipedia and look it up and you'll know exactly where that character come from, came from, what that was a reference to. And so it's like everyone now feels like they're in on that. And I, and I get for these people that grew up reading comics and that was what they, you know, they kind of, that was their big thing that they geeked out on all the time. It probably would be annoying that now everyone's in on comics. But uh, this is what Marvel has done. And to a, another extent, Christopher Nolan has done as far as making us think of them as serious cinema. But they're really not. And I agree with Martin Scorsese, who got a, took a bunch of shit, basically, because he came out and ripped the Marvel movies and said that it's not cinema. You know, and in his definition, and yeah, I mean, is he gatekeeping? Sure, he's gatekeeping a little bit. Um, but I think he's probably earned that right. I mean, he's a guy that has really worn it on his sleeve, his love of cinema and he has watched a lot of movies from a lot of different places he's done documentaries about his love for cinema he's he's done every genre of movie basically he's directed at all kinds of levels of of uh, of budget and for different studios and worked with tons countless actors over the years and i mean he's kind of done it all in the world of movies so he's a guy that i think can be a gatekeeper basically i mean he to him movies are like what comics are to people like kevin smith and the other people who've, you know, who are kind of the gatekeepers of comics, for better or worse. So he said they're not real cinema. I like the Marvel movies. I've seen every single one of them. Uh, and I enjoy watching them every time. I'll watch every one of them because I just think they're fun to watch. And I think they're gorgeous to look at. I think they pick good actors. Uh, and I like the little tiebacks and the little callbacks to the other movies. And, you know, I think that's cool. I like that inside baseball kind of stuff. I like how they all connect to each other. It feels like I'm watching, you know the biggest budget television series ever created. So I like that. But are these movies fully rounded, deeply satisfying cinema? No, they're not. For the most part, there are a few examples that are, but the Suicide Squad is not one of them. So I sat there watching it. And I'm like, this is it, but this is it. And it's a silly movie. I think that this movie is like, porn for diehard readers of of obscure comics and especially people who actually read the suicide squad back in the day which i am not one of them so i don't i'm not like into the suicide squad i don't know how they were depicted in comics but from what i've read this movie gets it pretty right because G james gunn picks a bunch of characters for his team he could have picked these like big name he said that he didn't have any restrictions really on characters he could use from dc he could have picked anyone he wanted he pulled like the most obscure kind of stupid superheroes super villains that he could find and put them together on a team and he he makes fun of it a little bit in the movie but he also treats these characters you know legitimately like he does treat them with some respect 
So it, it does make you kind of feel for them a little bit in some cases, especially a character like the Polka Dot Man, which again, is what a stupid name, and the, he throws polka dots, but he tries to give him a little backstory, and he actually makes him interesting and funny, uh, whereas it, you know, it could have just been a silly joke. Um, but I, I like that he picked these obscure characters because there's not a whole lot here that's mainstream, which is what makes this very different than the Marvel movies, which are very mainstream and they're trying to be very mainstream. The characters in this movie, the Suicide Squad, are pretty much anonymous. Uh, you've got beloved actors in this movie, but they're like playing assholes that you don't really want to root for. There's so much blood being spilled in gory, gory detail. I mean, this movie is really R-rated gore, uh, and it earns the R rating for violence alone. There's there's plenty of language in it as well, a little bit of sex, not much, but so much blood and gore to the point where I was actually watching it. I've watched so many violent, unspeakably violent movies over the years. I was actually watching. I was like, man, this is a little overkill with the violence. Like it's just too much. It feels, it feels, uh, I don't know, gratuitous at this point with everything that we've been through as a nation with people constantly shooting each other all the time to watch a movie like this. Now it feels more gross than I think it did 30 years ago when you watched RoboCop or Rambo or one of those other really gory movies from back in the day, but this movie is extremely gory. So if you like that kind of thing, if you like to watch people just get shot up, then the suicide squad, you can't really go wrong. There's some gross stuff. I mean, there's like people getting ripped in half. There's people getting their, you know, uh, an ax through their head. There's all kinds of just nasty shit in this movie. And and gun does not shy away from it. You could tell he's doing everything here that he wanted to do when he did gardens of the galaxy, but was obviously not allowed because he's doing a PG 13 movie for Disney that needs to make a couple billion dollars at the box office. So he kind of had all his fun here. The movie also has this soundtrack packed full of punky tracks that you've probably never heard of in your life. I knew a couple of them, but even me, as I consider myself a music nerd, I didn't know a lot of these songs. I'd be interested to know if Andy did, uh, but it was a lot of obscure kind of stuff. Um, from, from rock and roll. It wasn't the stuff you heard again in guardians of the galaxy which was like mainstream classic rock that pretty much everybody would know uh, as Chris Pratt's character listened to the music on his Walkman. So the total opposite, I feel like, of Guardians of the Galaxy pretty much in every single way uh, that, that you could imagine, other than the fact that it's an ensemble movie. That's really the only thing that it's got in common. But the characters are not likable. The actors are playing assholes. Uh, so violent. And you don't, you've never really heard of any of these characters other than Harley Quinn. She's pretty much, she's pretty much it. All the other ones are just weird characters that really did come from comics, but feel like somebody just made them up to make fun of comics. So Suicide Squad's cool. Um, it was, uh, I would say it's worth your stream for sure. If you are looking for, uh, if you like comic movies at all, I, I didn't see the other Suicide Squad movie. I haven't kept up on the DC extended universe. I've watched the Wonder Woman movies. I've seen the the uh, Superman movies. I haven't seen Aquaman. Haven't seen the new Justice League cut. So there's so much shit I have not seen from this universe. But I watched it and didn't feel like I needed to have seen any of that. So even if you're not into the DC movies, if you're just looking for something to to check out on a Friday night or something, this is a pretty good choice to have a beer with because it's a good time. It's funny. Uh, the action is intense. It's well-directed. James Gunn is a very good director, I think, especially of action. Uh, and I think he 
he handled the writing of this uh, pretty well. It's got a, a story also that, that keeps you going, and it's, it's just a very direct plot. It, there's not a lot of tendrils to keep up with. It's just a very direct kind of, here's the mission. Let's see if we can pull it off. It's one of those. So, you know, that's, that, that is, there's something to be said for that. We're going to take a group of heroes, we're going to drop them off on an island, and we're going to watch them pull off their mission. There's not a lot of those movies made anymore. Those were big in the 80s, and this is kind of that kind of a story. So, it's streaming now on HBO Max. It's not going to change your life, but hey, it might give you a good time on a Friday night, so that's more than you can say for a lot of movies. The Suicide Squad right now is streaming on HBO Max. Non-lethal. You lose. No one likes to show off. Unless what they're showing off is dope as fuck. Fuck. That's true. And again, how it works on HBO Max, it's new now, so it'll be on the, the platform for a month, and then they'll pull it off for a little for like a few more months while it's in theaters and stuff and then they'll put it back on HBO Max so it'll probably be back on there again maybe like the end of this year or the or early in 2022 so if you don't watch it in the next few weeks after you're hearing this show then um, it's uh, or after this show has debuted I should say in August then you're probably going to miss it for a little while longer you're going to have to pay a premium to check it out Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. I want to tell you about another new movie that I watched on HBO Max uh, in just a second. But before that, since Andy's not here, let me take my turn playing DJ and giving you five songs to add to the perfect playlist that we've got going over at Spotify. If you want to find the playlist, by the way, all you have to do is uh, search on Spotify Stream Police Podcast, and it definitely will come up for you because... Uh, the name of the playlist is simply Stream Police Podcast Playlist. And at this point, it's up to almost 400 songs going back years and years on this show of what Andy has recommended and in a few cases what I've recommended. Uh, but, uh, yeah, you can find it there and, and subscribe. You can also subscribe to the show itself on Spotify if you uh, prefer to listen to all your audio that way. It's a pretty nice and easy way 
to do it. So we thank them for hosting us as well. All right, I'm picking the tracks, so let's get to it. First up, I'm going to give you a brand new one by a little rock duo called Wet Leg. Yes, it's a disgusting name for a group, uh, Wet Leg, but I got to say it's it's got some brains behind it. It's, it's, it's certainly memorable. And uh, this duo cut this track during quarantine, from what I understand, and the song to me is just such a punk rocker, and it sounds... The lyrics, if you if you read them and listen to them, just sound like, I don't know, Dr. Seuss for punks. That's all I can think of when I hear this. The song is called Chaise Long, just like the piece of furniture. And uh, that word does uh, that phrase does come up quite a bit in the song. Chaise Long by Wet Leg. Is your muffin buttered? Would you like us to assign someone to butter your muffin? Excuse me. Would you like us to assign someone to butter your muffin? That's another lyric I should get tattooed uh, on my arm. We were talking about that a few episodes ago. All right, another uh, a classic. Let me let me give you an absolute classic here. Rock and roll. I don't know if it ever got much more epic than Gordon Lightfoot's "The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald." This is one of those songs that just raises the hair on my arms every time I hear it, and it's got to go on the playlist. When supper time came, the old cook came on deck saying, fellas, it's too rough to feed you. At 7 p.m., a main hatchway gave in. He said, fellas, it's been good to know you. The captain wired in, he had water coming in, and the good ship and crew was in peril. Later that night when his lights went out of sight Came the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald Good God, that song is epic, and in all the right ways, right? Another one that's epic, but in a totally different way, Ariana Grande's God is a Woman. Crank this one up every time you hear it. I'm the least religious person you will ever meet, but when Ariana Grande says it, I I almost believe it. Another one for you. Let's go with a Frank Zappa favorite of mine. Fimbot in a wet t-shirt. 
from the immortal Joe's Garage. Finally, one of my absolute favorite songs, one that every time I hear it, just I, I don't touch it, even though it's a pretty lengthy one, uh, and it just gets me in the mood to to smoke and have a drink and have a good time. I'm talking about A Whiter Shade of Pale, the cover done by King Curtis. My favorite, probably my favorite version of this classic song, who which everyone has covered at this point. You know what? Fuck it. I'm going to give you one more. So I'm going to give you six songs since you know what? Andy's not here, so I'm I'm doing it. I'm giving you another song. One more, and it's a good timer. Put it on when you're on the highway. 18 Wheels and a Crowbar by BR549. mean mean track a lot of good trucking tracks over the years out of country music but 18 wheels and a crowbar might be the most angry of them all so there you go there's one two three four five six songs added to the playlist check it out at spotify right now my friend
All right, moving right along, back in to the big screen, or the small screen, I guess, which is what it's going to be forever. Feel. I, am I ever going to be able to go to a movie theater again? I'm really bummed about this. I mean, it might have been my favorite place to go in the entire world. But, you know, with my health, and even though I'm vaccinated, like, I just don't know that I can justify going and sitting in a little movie theater with no ventilation for three hours with a bunch of people that I'm not sure if they got vaccinated or not. So it's, it's, uh, it sucks, man. I don't know if I'm ever going to be able to get, I'm just going to be stuck watching shit on my TV on HBO max forever. If I want to watch new movies at all. So that's not what I want to, I don't want to pay $25 to rent a movie and watch it at home. I don't want to do it. It's not, you know, the movie theater is justified. Yes, it's expensive, but it's worth it. The whole experience, but this sucks. Let's just get get your goddamn shots and let's get back into the movie theater, please. Anyway, I digress. So maybe I'm a little angry because the other movie I watched on HBO Max this month that's brand new was LeBron James in Space Jam, A New Legacy. And I was actually excited for this one because I am a great lover of the original Space Jam. I mean... How can you really beat it? It, It's such a weird, wacky premise and idea. I mean, at that point, you have to remember in the mid-90s, Michael Jordan was the, he was culture. I mean, he was like the biggest celebrity athlete person on earth at that point. Greatest athlete, you know, that we had really ever seen in team sports. Um, The way he just dominated the game, his whole aura. Uh, the guy kid was just, he walked on water essentially at that point. And so what does he do? He's never done a movie. He didn't go into acting yet like a lot of other big celebrities, big athletes did. But he decides to. And what movie does he do? He does a movie where he's playing basketball, a live action version of himself and playing himself, playing basketball alongside Bugs Bunny, Tasmanian Devil, Granny, and Tweety Bird. I mean, it's so bizarre that this that that movie even happened. That frankly, I was very disappointed when The Last Dance came out and they didn't spend more time talking about Space Jam. It was like a very small part of it, but I was like, man, you could do a half hour on Space Jam, right? Just talking about how it even came about and the stories from him working behind the scenes with Bill Murray and Wayne Knight and with all those guys. Uh, but they they barely touched on it. So I was kind of disappointed by that. But I was very excited about Space Jam and New Legacy because I like LeBron James in general, obviously. I think he's shown that he's a pretty good actor. Um, I really thought he was very good in Trainwreck uh, a couple years ago. He was the highlight of the entire movie uh, for me. And so I was like, yeah, you know, I'll give this a, a shot. I mean, why not? And it's got better animation now, clearly. And it was. It did have better animation. It looked better than the original Space Jam did. But that's about all it had going for it, man. We got. We decided to watch this with Emerson, our son. Beth and I did. And we got about, I don't know, 30, maybe 40 minutes into it. It felt like two hours and Emerson just didn't even want to watch it anymore. And this, he's three. He wasn't even three at that point. I think he was still two. And he just didn't like it at all. And I was sitting there watching it too. And I'm like, oh my God, this is just awful. Like everything, it was truly awful. And you know, I don't like to come on here and usually do that. I don't waste my time talking about stuff that I thought sucked. I usually just watch it and move on. 
Uh, I don't like to waste the precious time we have every month on this show talking about shit that sucks. But Space Jam and New Legacy was just bad, man. I mean, you're sitting there watching it, and it's like the acting feels so just bad, just amateur acting is what it what it was. And it was like LeBron was so wooden and stilted because he's playing a version of himself, which I think actually is hard to do. But he was trying to, like, they tried to give it so much backstory. And, I mean, they spend, like, 20 minutes doing world building, trying to get into what the back like background is and how this is going to happen. And, you know, you've got Don Cheadle playing this character who's an algorithm, and his name is Al G. Rhythm. And, like, I wish I was making that up, but that is just, that's the kind of writing we have in this movie. Like, nothing about it worked. Even Bugs Bunny comes in, and he's just kind of a douche which is not really how i think of Doug, bugs bunny being and just the whole like they just tried to give it so such a serious like backstory where you would believe it and they tried to build so much world and that's not if you watch the original space jam they don't waste any time on that it's like really simple it's like okay the monsters are here they're going to take over toon world we have to beat them in a basketball game okay let's you know go up to earth basically create a portal and we'll kidnap Michael Jordan and get him to come here and, and play hoops with us on our team. So, and that was pretty much the setup for the movie. And, you know, they got to make fun of Jordan a little bit. He was playing baseball and, you know, it, it was, it was all like really done in good fun. And it was, you know, it was a good starring vehicle for Jordan because he didn't have to do any real acting, but here LeBron's trying to have like a dramatic scenes, a little connection with his son, a, like a terse relationship with him. And, it just felt like I was watching something that was made for YouTube, especially the cinematography. The cinematography to me was stunningly amateur because there were some scenes like when you're watching the beginning, like there are drone shots that legitimately look like they were filmed on the same drones that like people use in their backyard to make drone shots of like their neighborhood. And I'm like, this is a big, this is Warner Brothers. This is like the one of the biggest movie studios in history. You know, I mean, these guys are the icons. Uh, they kind of invented the big studio picture. And this is what we're getting. Like, it just felt cheap to me at that point. And then they get into the actual, like, Toon World and, and all that stuff. And it's all just, like, sickening, nauseating product placement at its sleaziest. It's all these... Warner Brothers owned properties, whether it's Game of Thrones or, um, you know, just there's a million of them that they they use. And, you know, I mean, it, it, Harry Potter even. And it's all just things owned by Warner Brothers. So it just feels gross like that's and they're not even trying to hide the fact that it's all owned by Warner Brothers. Like they even mentioned that in the movie. But so what I was comparing it to in my mind contrasting it, I should say too, in my mind was the Lego movie. Because if you watch the Lego movie and I'm a great lover of that, I think the Lego movie is truly one of the, the better family movies to come out in decades. I mean, it's just tremendous. It's gorgeous animation, razor sharp, brilliant script, you know, good voice acting, just awesome. Just every moment of the Lego movie works for me. But what they did in that was they had they used the Lego like Lego has these connections to all of these pop culture icons like franchises, superheroes, you know, different movies, different um, video games, all kinds of stuff. 
because Lego, you know, has built all these sets based around all these licensed pro- properties. And so they were able to use that in the movie to bring all these iconic characters into one movie. And so War- uh, Space Jam and Warner Brothers, they try to do that in Space Jam and New Legacy, but it just feels gross because they're all tied to one single studio, whereas it didn't, it wasn't that way in the Lego movie. You didn't feel like they were trying to sell you Legos the way this movie feels like they're trying to sell you Warner Brothers. So I was just kind of grossed out, and I just didn't like it. I didn't even get to any of the basketball. But, you know, we just turned it off. It was just, I don't know, maybe it picked up a lot in the second half, but I don't know. I was not feeling Space Jam A New Legacy at all. Didn't impress me. Huge waste of time. Uh, and a... a <laughs> A pock mark on the legacy of the original brilliant Space Jam, which is a childhood favorite of mine. But I'd like to think that even if I didn't watch it in my my childhood, there's still something there that makes it worth watching. It's just a charming, funny, weird, weird movie. And this just feels like a blatant copy, really. And they they do kind of make fun of that a little bit in in a couple scenes. Like the, 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 the characters, the Looney Tunes characters are kind of like, didn't we already do this? Didn't we already play a basketball game with a star basketball player uh, to take control of of the world? And of course they did, and everyone knows that. And you know, so but it but it just didn't work for me. I don't know. It just felt pointless and uh, felt like a cash a cash grab, pretty much from from Warner Brothers. Felt like they were whoring out my childhood to try to sell things owned. By, by Warner. So Warner Media Group as it is. Uh, so what did you think? Did you watch Space Jam A New Legacy? Did I miss some brilliant cinema in the second half of the movie by turning it off? Because I almost never turn a movie off. Doesn't happen with me. Even ones I don't like that much, I keep watching them. But this one, we just turned it off and I never even thought about it again until I was thinking about it to, to tell you about it for this show. So, But I couldn't make it through, man. Just it was It was gross. It was not good. But if you want to check it out, you'll be able to watch it again on HBO Max. It is off there mercifully now, but uh, it'll be back on in just a little while on HBO Max. Space Jam, A New Legacy. Why? Why? Oh, yeah, Metropolis. I can't wait to see what I turn into here. Oh, it's going to be somebody dope. Robin? I'm freaking Robin? And why are we chasing a runaway train? We're in DC World, Doc. And where there's trouble, there's superheroes. I think it hurt more than when LeBron left Cleveland again to go to Los Angeles. I think think this actually hurt me more. All right, to wash the taste of uh, Space Jam, a new legacy out of my mouth... I want to tell you about a, another movie streaming that I watched that I absolutely adored and I thought was an essential piece of documentary filmmaking from the last few years. The film is called Disclosure and it is on Netflix. It's a Netflix original movie. Again, it's called Disclosure. I heard about this from the interview that Oprah did with Elliot Page a couple months ago. I think I told you about the interview, the Oprah Elliot Page interview on Apple TV Plus and recommended you watch it because it was a very good interview. Uh, and it kind of showed the technology that can be used, uh, even if you know, you're know you not that interested in Elliot Page as, a, as an actor, as a person. I think the technology being used in that interview was impressive, 
while it was also kind of weird to put them in the same room, even though they were, you know, states apart from each other, miles and miles apart uh, from each other to do that interview. But Oprah, again, proved in that interview, I think she's the best in the business. But she mentions in the in that interview several times, she mentions the movie Disclosure on Netflix, saying that she had watched it recently because Elliot Page recommended she check it out because it's really about trans representation in the media. And that is the name of the game with this movie. Um, and so I was like, I got to add that to my list because I am a nut for film criticism documentaries. I'm just, those are some of my favorite documentaries, as you would probably imagine. Uh, movies that take a critical look at movies with clips and they break them down and they critique them. They tell you what's good, what's bad. Um, I just think that it's a great medium to be able to critique movies using movies to do that. And Disclosure is kind of a, one of the most recent examples of this being done. And I think it's one of the best. I put it up there with some of my favorites, which I'll get to in a minute. I'll tell you about some other movies that this reminds me of. But Disclosure is, from start to finish, all about the representation of transgender people on screen, specifically in television and movies, going back to the beginning of the moving image, which I thought was incredible. I never realized that they had people and, and it wasn't like the word trans didn't even exist then. I mean, we're talking about like hundred more, a hundred and more years ago at this point when the moving image was really was just created but some of the first films ever created had like androgynous characters. You had women dressing as men. You had men dressing as women. And, you know, at that point, it, it was it wasn't necessarily that these people were trans, but it was like people were experimenting uh, in these movies anyway with how they could play different characters, how they could, you know, explore different roles, I guess. So um, and obviously, you know, the stories going back to you know, Shakespeare's original days at the, the Globe Theater where they had, you know, men playing women because they didn't have any women actors. So, uh, you know, I mean, this kind of thing goes back a long, long time in media, but Disclosure takes a really close look at specifically representation of trans characters and trans people, people that are actually supposed to be trans or who actually are trans in the media. And it was so eye-opening and so well done. The clips they chose were great. It made me re-examine a few movies and shows that I had liked and thought of and really hadn't thought of through that lens uh, and made me consider them that way. But I, I thought what was so, the clips chosen are great and the research done in the movie is, is very good. Um, and it's an illuminating movie. I think it's one that anyone who's a movie lover, TV lover should definitely watch. So you're in the audience of this show. I think you should definitely watch Disclosure. But what I was really impressed by was the, was the fact that this whole documentary was done basically by a trans cast. The director is named Sam Fader and Sam Fader is trans. Um, and everyone that is featured on camera for a sit down interview, every single person to the last one is trans which was brilliant because I've seen tons of these movies about different, you know, whether it was the representation of black people on screen, the representation of gay people on screen, um, how those, how, you know, all the representation of the Holocaust on screen and they're interviewing people that aren't necessarily Jewish in that case, or aren't necessarily gay, uh, but are giving their takes on these things or aren't even black. And they're talking about black representation on film because they're a quote unquote movie expert. 
But this movie is all trans people. Laverne Cox, Brian Michael Smith, Jen Richards, Alexandra Billings, Susan Stryker, many, many others. And you'll recognize a lot of them from their work in TV and in movies. Um, a lot of very strong actors show up in this to talk about the way that these movies and the, these, these representations opened their eyes when they were children a lot of times or made them ashamed, made them angry, um, and have hurt them over the years and have hurt the trans community. And you hear a lot of direct correlations being made from people like Laverne Cox. Laverne Cox is in it a lot. I mean, she's in it more probably than anyone else. She's one of the producers of the film. And why not? Because Laverne Cox is a great spokesperson for the trans community, well-respected, great actor, um, and very well-spoken, very well-educated on these things. Um, you get the sense that she's a real lover of cinema and a real lover of TV, and she's seen a lot of it, and especially things that, that concern LGBTQ people. So, uh, you know, I think she's a good source and uh, the, all the people that they interviewed had uh, obviously a very personal connection with all of this because they work in the entertainment industry or, um, even if they don't, they're just trans people and the, clearly these representations hit them hard in a way that, uh, you know, cis people are never really going to understand even if they try to. So, uh, I was really, really impressed with this movie, but they make a lot of correlations between saying that the way trans people have been represented on screen, which a lot of times is as mentally unstable, uh, a lot of times violent people. Um, and it's so far removed from what the, the reality is of people who are trans, which are, you know, in general, and it's just generalizing, not a violent group of people, more of a passive group of people. Um, but the media has played them as like crazy people with secrets that they're hiding from the cis community. And like they're shifty snakes who are trying to fool everyone into thinking there's something they're not. And obviously that is so offensive, but that's the way that the narrative has been played for so long. Um, even in really well-respected Critically acclaimed movies like um, The Crying Game, for instance, which they go into in, in detail in this movie. Uh, and they've said that they think that that has to do with why trans women especially are murdered at a much higher rate than any one other single group in the population. It's just like a crazy trans women of color especially are just killed at a crazy high rate for how small of a, a percentage of the population they take up. So uh, a lot of eye-opening stuff in this movie, but it really is mostly just about the media. It's not, it doesn't go a whole lot off the page of that. So that's, I really appreciated the focus. I think that that helps a lot in a documentary like this and, uh, you know, not getting off the beaten path too much. So the movies that it reminded me of though, if you like disclosure, if you've already watched it, maybe if you haven't watch it, seriously, put it on your Netflix list and really watch it. Um, because I, th I really think you're going to like it. It's not that long and it's really eye opening, and I thought it was very well done. Uh, but it reminded me a lot of the Celluloid Closet, which is one of my very favorite documentaries ever. The Celluloid Closet came out in 1995. This was a really critical look at the way gay characters were portrayed uh, in in television and in movies, especially. It was really about movies um, going back decades and decades, and how Hollywood kind of swept gay characters under the rug, never allowed them to be really shown as out gay. 
Um, and if they were out gay, then they were like this cartoonish kind of thing. Uh, and they weren't real people. So it, it just ended up making people feel a certain way about gay people that maybe they wouldn't have if Hollywood had actually treated this segment of society with the respect that it deserved. So Hollywood has a huge responsibility, and I think movies like Disclosure and The, Ho- and the Celluloid Closet uh, will show you that. But that's another one you should add to your list, The Celluloid Closet. Um, other film criticism documentaries that are like this that kind of take social things and also the film criticism hand-in-hand If you're interested in this kind of thing, Imaginary Witness is another really good one. That one is about the Holocaust and the way it's been portrayed on film and what's what's been good, what's been bad about how it's been portrayed. Um, And also the Pervert's Guide movies. There's There's a movie called The Pervert's Guide to Cinema, The Pervert's Guide to Ideology. Both of them are about movies, and both of them are fascinating. It's two of my absolute favorite film criticism documentaries, so check those out. The Pervert's Guide movies. Um, Imaginary Witness, The Celluloid Closet, and definitely Disclosure, which right now is streaming for you on uh, on Netflix. And uh, I fully recommend it. I could watch these kind of movies all day just because I'm a movie nerd, but hopefully you'll like them as well. I, uh, I, but I was very impressed by this. I thought it was, it was really well done, really authentic. It's like trans and cinema have grown up together. It's like we have always been present on screen, and it's not just coincidental. I mean, there's something really deeply connected. Can we all just talk about D.W. Griffith for a minute? The fact that we study and teach D.W. Griffith without saying a word about the representation. Like, I'm glad I didn't go to film school. Because if I had seen Birth of a Nation, when they got to that blackface moment, when this guy springs up from behind a bush wanting to rape the white woman, that would have been it for me at at film school, right? That that would have been my last day. Not only is D.W. Griffith incredibly racist, but he understands that you can turn gender non-conforming people into the joke of your story. It's like, oh yeah, great, D.W. Griffith, you, you know, racist piece of shit. You, you've invented the stereotype in film, well done. If you look at that early silent film, A Florida Enchantment, it foregrounds questions of gender change. And using blackface while you're using gendered cross-dressing, you know, just like it's these sort of twin fascinations that, you know, they're always sort of tangled up with each other somehow. It was close. Disclosure was close to the best thing I watched this month, but alas, it was not the best thing I watched this month. Let me tell you about that now, and for that I'm going to go back to 1986 and Martin Scorsese's The Color of Money, which I revisited. This was a movie that I I first watched a long time ago, probably a decade ago, maybe more, and I did not love it. I don't know what I was expecting. I think what I was expecting... I was a big pool player when I was a teenager and in college. I would play in some tournaments and stuff like that. I loved playing pool. And I thought The Color of Money was just going to be a big pool movie. And I didn't expect what it actually was, which is a really just... It's a character drama. And it's a character study. And it's a movie about how no one is really what they seem to be. And you've got to watch out you know, who you trust and, and what's the image that you're presenting. You know, what are you trying to sell people? 
with yourself is what the color of money is really all about. I didn't expect that and I wasn't into it. So I didn't love the movie, but I was like, you know what? I'm going to go back and watch this again because it just doesn't sit with me that I wouldn't like this film. I mean, I love Paul Newman. I think he's, you know, maybe the best movie actor, like Hollywood, A-list, you know, leading man looks movie actor that's ever been. Uh, And Tom Cruise is absolutely one of my very favorite actors. And Scorsese, obviously, one of my absolute favorite directors. So how could I not like this movie? And sure as shit, I rewatched it on Blu-ray and I loved it. I was just hooked from the opening moment when you hear Robbie Robertson's fantastic opening theme song kick off. Um, It's the sequel. And I watched The Hustler as well. uh, And I thought The Hustler was very good. The the Hustler is fucking dark, man. Um, And I think Paul Newman's character in that is so much less likable than he is in The Color of Money. Because Newman plays the same character in The Hustler as he does in Color of Money. But it's years and years apart, obviously decades apart. Um, But I like The Color of Money better than The Hustler. I think it's the rare sequel that surpasses the original. The script is just razor sharp. The editing is impeccable. The pace is lightning. And the acting uh, is flawless. So there's just nothing bad for me to say about The Color of Money. I love the ending as well. I I love everything about it. I I thought it was brilliant. It had really grown on me over the years. Newman and Cruz, obviously perfection, but Mary Elizabeth Mastrantonio, who I had forgotten was the uh, other lead in this movie, who was the female lead. Um, she was just tremendous. And I, I am kind of sad that I haven't seen her in a whole lot of other things other than the color of money. I, I, she's been in plenty of stuff. I mean, you look at her IMDb page, she's done a ton of big TV roles and stuff like that. So it's not like she hasn't been around, but I haven't seen her a whole lot in a lot of things other than this, and I just think she's tremendous in this. She gives, I mean, she's acting with two of the biggest heavyweights ever, and she more than holds her own. She's right there with them the whole time. She's got a bunch of scenes where it's just her and Paul Newman, and how intimidating must that have been at that point, 1986? I mean, you're with a legitimate living American legend, and Newman's great in the movie, and he's giving it everything he's got, and she's just right there with him. She's she's fantastic, so... I'd love to hear her stories about filming this movie because they've got to be great acting alongside those two guys. The Color of Money from 1986, the best thing I watched this month. Find it wherever you can and check it out in high def because it's a, God, it's a gorgeous movie. Even if you don't like pool, I think you'll like it. There's going to be a nine ball tournament, end of April, Atlantic City. There'll be a lot of action there. I think we ought to go. We? Yeah, me, you, and Carmen. Yeah? That sounds like a lot of fun. Best part is we ought to leave tomorrow. Tomorrow? When I leave today, tomorrow. What is it with this guy? <laughs> Crack me up. Vincent, if you're going to take the plunge, give yourself a fair shake. There you go with this thing half-assed. Nobody's going to do any good. Go on a road. Six weeks. Get some seasoning. Put together some stuff. Why don't Julian? I mean, he'd be in that, right? Julian's a face. He's known. You're nobody. I get better bets with you. Now... If you know some other way that I can be honest with you, you got to tell me. This is my job, Ed. You think so? Hmm. That's funny. I don't think so. I think it's your problem. All right, finally, let's get to some movies now streaming that you can find on Netflix, Prime Video, Hulu, and HBO Max that I'm recommending you add to your queue. Let's start with Netflix. Something Light from 2016. It's The Edge of 17, starring... The great Haley Steinfeld, who is a really a, 
a triple threat if there ever was one. Um, I, I like Haley Steinfeld and everything I've seen her in. She was great, of course, in the Coen Brothers' True Grit. And this movie was a great vehicle for her. It really showed how funny she is, how good her timing is. And it, it let her play like a really a more normal teenager than that breakout role in True Grit did. Um, you know, where it was obviously set in the Old West. Uh, but this was a really good vehicle for her, and Woody Harrelson is good in it as well. Good script, funny movie, better than your average teen movie. The Edge of 17 from 2016. Check it out now on Netflix. Something dark for you on Netflix. What can I say? It's my favorite movie of all time. It's always been. If you know me for the last 20 years, I've only had one movie that's my favorite movie ever made. I've never wavered on it, never changed it. P.T. Anderson's Magnolia from 1999. Uh, this is again, Tom Cruise, Philip Seymour Hoffman, you name them there in the movie, uh, William H. Macy. The, the cast is brilliant. Julianne Moore, everybody who's in it just does a tremendous job. Jason Robards as well. And the, the movie just gets my pulse pounding like no other. It is character acting, character drama at its absolute best. It's big time studio drama, movie making adult drama at its best. It's experimental it's kind of wild. It's, it's it's totally self-indulgent on the course of uh, on the uh, um, in the case of Paul Thomas Anderson. But God damn, I love this movie. I will watch Magnolia and defend it till the day I die. Like I said, my very favorite movie. It's streaming now on Netflix in beautiful high def. So set apart three hours and give it a watch because it's I love it. It's my favorite movie. On Amazon Prime Video now, something light for you from 2004, Sideways. This is, you know, maybe to me the prototypical adult comedy. Very funny, sophisticated, sharp script, uh, but not so sophisticated to where it's like, <laughs> and you never really laugh at anything. Like, there's some body stuff in this. that, uh, uh, But there's some very good soulful acting and a, a really good score in this movie as well. Good buddy movie, good road movie. A couple of buddies go up to a wine country in California to celebrate the impending wedding of one of them. And, you know, things get kind of sideways as they can. So uh, Thomas Hayden Church, phenomenal. Paul Giamatti, very good in this as well. Uh, Sandra Oh is awesome in it. It's just a, it's a really good movie. Sideways, streaming now on Prime Video. Watch it if you if you put it off for all these years. Uh, also on Prime Video, something dark. This isn't even dark. This is actually light, too. Um, so I'm giving you two light ones, really, from Prime. 1984 is The Natural with Robert Redford. We were talking Paul Newman. How can we not talk about Robert Redford? The Natural is, uh, I mean, I talked about it last month, actually, on the show. It's magical. It's cinematic magic. I swear to God, I think Barry Levinson channeled real magic when he made this movie. Randy Newman's score, the 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 look, the dust flying off the baseball as it gets hit, the, the way he shoots the lights in the stadium, just everything about it is great. And it does have some dark stuff in it. Uh, and it's not just a straight baseball movie. It's just a good, just a good movie, just a great American movie, The Natural. If you haven't watched it yet, stop wasting your time and check it out in high def on Prime Video. On Hulu right now from 1997, one of my favorite uh, rom-coms ever. I guess you could say it. It's more like a rom-drom. As good as it gets, James L. Brooks, uh, one of the great projects he's ever been associated with as far as a film goes. Uh, Jack Nicholson, just flawless in his performance here. This is the, the performance from Nicholson that really made me love him as an actor, because I saw this movie when I was pretty young 
and I didn't wasn't really that familiar with Nicholson, uh, but this movie made me really like him because he just plays such a fucking asshole in it, but he just does it so well that you can't help but root for him. And Greg Kinnear is really good, and Helen Hunt, and it's a it's really one of my favorites, as good as it gets from 1997. Very good romantic drama comedy, just a a great character movie as well. From 1953, something dark for you on Hulu, Shane. It's one of the towering masterpieces of the Western genre. You hear people talk about Shane all the time, and there's a reason. It's just a great story. It's um, mythic. It's heroic. It's um, got, you know, fantastic characters. It's the archetypal character Western, really. So check out Shane. Streaming for you right now on Hulu. If you like westerns at all in western and movie history, you really need to watch this one. It's it's very good. It, it deserves the praise it gets. Let's go to HBO Max, finally. Something light for you. How about Space Jam, the original? I already told you about it, why you should watch it. Just turn it on. Put it on in the background while you're cleaning. You can't go wrong. It's Space Jam. It's Bill Murray and Michael Jordan. What more do you want? And finally, on HBO Max, something dark. This one's really dark and really underrated. Clint Eastwood's 2008 movie, Changeling, uh, with Angelina Jolie in a really kind of powerhouse, but uh, it goes under the radar for some reason as a, a lead performance for her. I believe she was nominated for an Oscar for it, but I never hear anybody talk about Changeling. Uh, this was her really at her dramatic peak to me, and it's a very sad story that's actually comes from a true story and it's kind of strange and weird but really gripping i really like this movie a lot i uh i have never it's one of those that i think about a lot i haven't seen it in a while but i i think about it every now and then because it's just a it's really stuck with me over the years it's stuck in my craw as they say so changeling right now is streaming for you on hbo max definitely recommend you check that one out clint eastwood at his you know, kind of dramatic best also, even though he's made some really good dramas, Changeling is, is right up there with his best. So that puts it in good air. All right, that's going to do it for another edition of the Stream Police Podcast. Thank you for coming and hanging out with me this month. Next time, we'll be back again and hear from Andy Sedlak. He'll be back to talk music with you guys, and I'll give you some more recommendations and Maybe tell you about some more stuff that I watched that sucked, but we'll we'll figure that out when we get here. So meet me again next month. But in the meantime, you want to get in touch, write me at theclintdavis at gmail.com and check me out on Instagram at Mr. Clint Davis. I'm actually on TikTok as well at Mr. Clint Davis if you want to find me. Find me on there too. Until next time, my friend, stream on. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bolinbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.